Hey, welcome to Redemption Parker. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here, and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. We are in this series, The Summer in the Psalms. We're actually going to be in Psalm number one this morning. Uh, sometimes you may wonder, how do, how, how do we determine what we're going to go through, and what series, and why Psalms? And then in the fall, we'll, we'll do nine months, start nine months through the book of Romans. And um, I, I wish I had a more spiritual answer uh, other than just the fact that, because I want to do it. So um, I wanted to spend some time soaking in the Psalms, and you'll see why today. And, and in the fall, I want to just spend some time digging deep into the, the beauty of the gospel that is put on display in Romans. So that, that's where we're at. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Rome, uh, Psalm chapter 1. Uh, turn it on or open your Bible, whatever the case may be, to Psalm chapter 1. I'll read it, and then um, we will jump in together. I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word. Psalm 1. Verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, and that yields its fruit in season, and its leaves does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the, wi- the way of the wicked will perish. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. May it be on our hearts, our minds, and our lips this week. Amen. Amen. Well, from the moment I took my first breath, I, breath, I was on a quest. You're like, how, what kind of quest were you on, on your first breath? I was. Uh, from the very first moment I opened my eyes and cried out, I was on a quest for happiness. And I was seeking to find happiness in, in many different ways. Sometimes it was biological, like I was hungry. So I would, uh, I would cry out so that, that that desire could be filled. Sometimes I was thirsty. Sometimes I needed my diaper changed. And sometimes as I, as I got older, the biological needs changed. And I went into my teenage years and I, uh, I was on a different quest. So I started combing my hair and, and washing my clothes. Uh, I, I was on a quest for my happiness. I love having Aaron's dad back, by the way, because... <laughs> Because uh, you actually give me some feedback. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Welcome back. Uh, I was on a quest. And, and I've been on a quest my whole life. And, and it takes on different forms. And, and different things motivate that. Some, some of it is just by virtue of the fact of where and when I was born. And so I was born uh, a, a white kid in the suburbs of uh, America. In the 20, was I born in the 21st century? I, no, that's 20th century. Thank you. See, uh, I was born in the 20th century. We're now in the 21st century. Uh, and uh, I breathe the cultural air. I, I see what other people think that will make them happy. And, and I say, well, I'll, I'll do that as well. I, I turn on the, the, the TV and every commercial that I've ever watched in my whole life has, has tried to send me on a quest for happiness. Get this thing and then you'll be satisfied. Get this thing and there'll be wholeness to your life. What, whatever it is. And, and I've gone down a lot of those different roads uh, to different degrees of success. I, I've been on this quest. And so uh, part of it was like, hey, uh, you, you know, it seems like uh, John Elway has a pretty good life. I wanted to be John Elway. Uh, and at different times, I wanted to be Magic Johnson. And, and so I would 
try to do things to be on that quest. Never made it far enough down that, that rope, but I was on a quest. Sometimes the quest uh, was, uh, in, in pursuit of my happiness, was to make sure I didn't bring in sorrow and pain into my world. And so uh, if I failed at something one time, I wouldn't try it again. Or if I thought I'd fail at something, I would not try that because that, that uh, after all, wouldn't bring me happiness or so I thought. Sometimes it was relational, like uh, with, with this girl or, or that girl or what, what kind of marriage do I want to have? What kind of family do I want to have? What kind of neighborhood? What, what, who do I want to surround my life with? Because uh, at the end of the day, I'm seeking my happiness. I, I want to be happy. Sometimes it was more existential, spiritual, I don't want to just be happy now. I want to be happy forever. And so that sent me on a quest so that when I was 19 years old, I uh, discovered the, the pathway, the, the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that has sent me on a different kind of quest. I've been on a quest for my happiness since day one. And today, I'm still on a quest. When I leave here, I'll be on a quest. There'll be questions and decisions that I have to make, and all of those decisions will be filtered through this lens. What will make me most happy? You think, well, Mark, you're quite... That kind of sounds kind of narcissistic. That kind of sounds like... Actually, that, that's true of you as well. The, the Bible is going to show us, the book of Psalms is going to show us uh, on repeat that, that three things about this, that, that all of us are on this quest. Whatever we do, it, it is through the lens of what will make me happy. And sometimes uh, we have different things pulling in us in different directions. Sometimes we are seeking a, a longer-term happiness, and sometimes it's immediate happiness. Sometimes it's like, do I eat the cake or the broccoli? And both of those bring a kind of happiness, and we wrestle and sometimes we're like, I want immediate happiness. I want long-term happiness. Do I binge Netflix or do I go work out? Do, do I do this job or that job? Do, do I save my money and invest for happiness later or do I just spend it all right here? But whatever it is, in that moment, we are, we are looking through the lens of what will make me happy? What will satisfy my soul? So that's the first truth that the Bible just acknowledges that we are all on a quest. The second thing that the Bible will show us on repeat is that even though we're all on the quest, we're all terrible at it. Amen. We actually kind of, we go down all sorts of roads and routes and, and pursuits that even when we succeed, we find that it did not deliver on what it promised. And actually we kind of come by it in some sense, innocently enough, it was our first parents. It was Adam and Eve. God created the universe, and it was good. He got created man and woman in his image, and it was good, and, and all things were good. In fact, God says, and it was very good. And, and God says, in relationship with me, there's just one rule to be in relationship with me. Do not eat of the tree in the center of the garden, or else you will surely die. And so we know the rest of the story. We don't know how long it took, but a, a moment happened where the deceiver came and the deceiver gave the temptation that was behind every temptation. And it is this, does God, is God really for you? Does God really want your happiness? We know you want your happiness, but does God want your happiness? And began to plant those seeds of doubt. And then 
We see that Eve looked at the tree, saw that it was good for, to the eye and pleasing to eat and, and pleasing to bring knowledge. And she made a decision in that moment. I believe my happiness is not in what God says. My happiness is in pursuing this thing. This is what will make me happy. And as, as all sin and temptation does, it overpromises and underdelivers. Promises life and joy and happiness, and it brought death and sorrow and brokenness into this world. We are terrible at pursuing our happiness. We are, um, it, it reminds me of the, the book of The Hobbit. In The Hobbit, they're, they're on the journey in the middle of the book. They have to go through the forest of Mirkwood. First of Mirkwood is this dark, dangerous place. And after receiving many warnings uh, from Gandalf and Bjorn, they say there's three things you cannot do when you go through the forest of Mirkwood. First, you can't touch or drink the dark stream water. It'll bring on forgetfulness and, and sleepiness and all this. So don't touch the water. Second, it's a long journey, um, but you can't, all there is to eat is nuts. And so you can't, you can't shoot any of the animals. And third, and most importantly, whatever you do, whatever you do as you're working with it, do not, do not go off the path. Stay on the path. It's the only way through. And so as the story progresses, they're, they're being very, very careful. They're staying on the path. They, got, they finally come to the water and they, they work it out that they're going to cross the water and they, they find a boat and they, they get in the boat. But as, just as they're about to get off the shore, uh, a deer comes leaping and they're hungry at this point because they haven't eaten for a while. And just out of reflex, one of the dwarves shoots at the deer and, and misses, but the, causes tumult. Some of them fall into the water. Uh, the deer gets away. Now they've got to drag this body on this path and, and they get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier until one day they see off the path what they think is a, a feast of elves. The elves are having a barbecue and their hunger and their thirst is driving them and they know don't take one step. Don't take one step off the path but, but the, their hunger and thirst, their, their pursuit of happiness is driving them and so they all rush off the path and they go into the forest and they go towards the light and they come into the clearing and, and right as they enter into the clearing the, the elves and the, it's all an apparition. It disappears. Now all of a sudden it's complete darkness. They can't find their way back. They're lost. It's a, it's a picture of the human condition. God said, this is the way. Stay to the path. Stay on this. This is the way that leads to life. And yet we said, oh, but, but I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. That will make me happy. That will satisfy me. And we go off the path and we're lost. We're lost. That's why we're trying to find our way back. Ultimate, ultimately, at, at the base of all of our pursuit of happiness is our pursuit to find our way back to the garden. This is why G.K. Chesterton said, uh, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is searching for God. We're thinking, man, what will satisfy? There's this hole in our heart and our life and our soul that only God can fill, that God has designed in us, and yet we try to jam anything and everything, and we all do it. We're terrible at pursuing our happiness. Now, the third thing that's on repeat in the Bible in relation to this is maybe surprising because of the way our hearts have been twisted, but is this, that God is for our happiness. That you seek happiness, you're terrible at it, but God is for it. He's not against that. God wants his creation. He wants his image bearers to delight and, and to, to find 
happiness. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you've begun the journey. You, you've, you've found the person that is happiness. And, and this happiness is designed to go on forever. It's designed to grow. The Bible will call that sanctification. That our happiness is tied to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then in following in his footsteps. Becoming more and more and more progressively like him. Your happiness, the Bible is going to say, is tied to that. And, and at the foundation of, uh, of that pursuit of, of sanctification throughout the Bible and throughout church history, it's been understood that that is pursued through prayer and praise at the foundation. Now, there's a lot of things that, that, that grow us in sanctification, but prayer and praise. And so God, in his word, has given us a whole book of prayer and praise. It is the longest book of the Bible. It is the most quoted book of the Bible. It is uh, immensely more influential even in the Bible than we can think or imagine. It is uh, used by Jesus. It's used by the apostles. It's used in the book of Revelation time and time again. We come back and point to this psalm book, this prayer book, uh, because it is the path for shaping our joy and growing us. But, but the Psalms also throughout church history have, have had a massive impact. Martin Luther, before uh, he kicked off the Reformation in Wittenberg, he got to lecture on the Psalms for two years. He just, just soaked in the Psalms and he taught the people the Psalms. He says this about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms are a verbal portrait gallery of God in that many of them provide us with a striking picture of God. Shepherd, King, warrior, father, teacher, and judge. The Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. Now, all of that we're going to kind of unpack here in, in Psalm 1. All of Psalm 1 kind of points to what Luther is getting at here. But, but, but the Psalms, even in the, the Reformation, were, were huge for God's people. You know, the reformers like Luther and Calvin, one of the first things they did was they brought back congregational singing. So, so the reason we sing is because they're like, hey, there's a whole book in the Bible about God's people singing. We should be singing together. And so they, they would write their own songs. They would use the scripture and, and, and write songs. But they would also, uh, Calvin wrote music for all 150 psalms so that the church would, would, would sing the psalms at least twice in the year, every psalm. They just said, this is, this is the songbook of God. It is... Uh, the first book that was ever published in North America, 1644, was the book of Psalms. Because as the people of God gathered there, they said, we need our songbook. It is, it is a treasure chest of, uh, of spiritual wealth and, and richness that is meant to shape and form us. And we come to Psalm 1. And, and like many uh, books, the first chapter or the first pages is an introduction and so Psalm 1 serves as an introduction to set us up for the rest of the Psalter, set us up for the rest of the 149 Psalms. And, and what's interesting, in a book of songs and, and prayers, Psalm 1 actually stands off differently than that. And, and we'll see why in just a moment. But it, it is laying out a pathway for us to pursue joy through God's Word. And so let's just look at it together. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man. Now that word man could be man or woman. So blessed is the man or woman. Uh, and that word blessed, if you have a different translation, might be happy. Happy is the man. But this, this idea of blessing is to, is, is to be in knowledge of who God is, to know God and be known by God, to, to align our lives with the reality of 
what God says he is and who he is and, and what his world is, you are blessed. So he says, blessed is the man. But, but before he talks about what that, that man is like, he does this contrast. He actually does what Jesus often does and, and something that is not popular in a kind of postmodern, uh, post-truth, post-everything world. He, Jesus would often just basically, in his teaching, divide the world into two parts. There are sheep and there are goats. That there is a wide road that leads, uh, that, that, is, that many are on. It's easy. Many are on it, it lead, but in the end, it leads to destruction, Jesus would say. He says there is a narrow road. It's hard to find. It's difficult. Few find it, but those who find it find life. So Jesus would do this. There's, there's really only two ways. There's not a, a, a kind of neutral, middle, kind of, kind of hard, kind of easy way that eventually gets its way to God. No, Jesus said, this is it. And this is what the psalmist is doing. There's, there are really only two kind of people. There's the righteous and the wicked. And, and what I want you to see here is there, there are actually some similarities. And the main similarity between the righteous and the wicked is they both are soaking in, immersing themselves in a kind of atmosphere, a kind of life, a kind of what we'll, we'll see here. Look, look what it says about the wicked. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, mock, of scoffers. So there, there is a kind of person that the Bible defines as wicked that, that basically has immersed their life in, in, a, in a culture of wickedness. It isn't necessarily that they start off that way. They're walking along and there's people that have set themselves up against the things and truth and, and love and mercy and all the things of God. And, and these people are saying, no, no, join us. Come over here. Think like what we think. Deny what we deny. Affirm what we affirm. And then you, you'll, you'll be happy with us. And so this person is walking along and, and they hear the voice. Eventually they, they stop. And they're hearing the counsel of the wicked. They, they stand in the way of sinners. They're basically settling into a corrupt worldview, a corrupt culture. And by the way, not all, there are parts of all cultures that Jesus is going to redeem and we're going to celebrate forever. But there are parts of all cultures that are, have set themselves up against uh, your joy ultimately, against your eternal satisfaction, uh, against the ways of God. And so in this culture, uh, they, are, they are standing among sinners and eventually uh, it just goes full on. They take a seat and they sit with scoffers. They become a scoffer. Scoffers, one commentary I read this week said, mockers and scoffers are missionaries of misery. Join us. This is life. Those people are bad. That's wrong. This is right. We'll, we'll, we'll cancel who needs to be canceled. We won't cancel who doesn't need to be canceled. And in this way, you, you will become one of us. And the Bible is very clear that we are all immersed in something some worldview, something that has set itself up against God. We're all being discipled by our culture. That there isn't spiritual, spiritually neutral territory. The things that come down the pipe to us that says, hey, deny this and affirm this, they, they have an intention. They want you to join them. They want you to sit with them and affirm what they affirm, deny what they deny. So you would think... If the problem is soaking in a, in a people that have set themselves up against the ways and, and reality of, of God virtu- uh, in ultimate reality, you would think the, the solution of the psalmist would be, so therefore, surround yourself with good people. 
Therefore, uh, make sure you, you have a good family and a good church and people that lift you up. And, and the Bible actually does speak to that a lot in a, in a different ways. Or, or you, you would think what, being the book of Psalms. Therefore, just start praying. You, you need to pray against that. Or you need to praise God. You need to, this is a book of prayers and praises. But that's not how Psalm 1 starts. It's interesting how Psalm 1 starts. He says, back to the righteous truth. But his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his way, on, on this law, he meditates day and night. Now, the law of the Lord, the Hebrew word is Torah, the instructions of God. It, it's not just like, like we think of legal laws. It says, this is the way that God has created the universe. This is the way that we relate to God. This is the, the way of the Lord, this teaching or the instruction. His delight is in the law of the Lord. But look what it says. And on his law, the very first thing that the psalmist wants us to do, and, and as we go through all 150 and the rest of the Bible, on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, this is not Eastern med- meditation. Eastern meditation, the aim of Eastern meditation and the Eastern worldview is that uh, our problem is desire. Remember, God said our problem is not desire, but in the Eastern worldview, our problem is desire, and it's the, the misappropriated desire, the, the lack of, of filling those desires that suffering comes into our world. And so, therefore, meditation in the Eastern worldview is to clear the mind, to kind of get lost in the cosmic nirvana of the universe so that you have no desire and therefore no suffering and you just kind of meld into the universe in that way. That's the aim of Eastern meditation, a clearing out of the mind. But this is not Psalm 1. Biblical meditation is not a clearing out, but a, an intentional filling of the mind, and in this case, with the, the ways, the instruction of the Lord. And, and it means to ponder, to think on, to roll over, to take some time, to just really think, what are the implications of this truth that I've just read? Well, what, what is this asking me? What, what, what does this say about God? What does this say about me? How, how, what is this calling me to? What, what can I do with this? It, it's a, it, it takes time, though. It's a soaking in the truth of God's word. It's a meditating on the law. And as you meditate on the law, a few things begin to happen there. It begins to uh, uh, stir in your mind. It's, it's intended to then push down into your heart. And, and the Psalms are going to talk a lot about the heart and the emotions, all the range of emotions that we experience as humans, anger and fear and joy and sorrow, all these things. The Psalms are going to give us language to uh, express and, and kind of a mirror for our souls in that. But, but it starts in the mind. It starts with saying, here's what's true. It's like when, if you've got a, a, a diesel in, in the wintertime and, and you've got to go plug in the engine because it's got to warm up the engine block. This is what the psalmist said. You want to warm up your affections for God? You want to warm up your, your, your emotions? So much of our worship just starts right at the emotion. But, but Psalm 1 says, no, start in the mind. Renew your mind. Paul will say it like this in Romans 12. Uh, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. That's, that's the scoffer. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. This is what the psalmist is getting at. As it stirs in your mind, it gets pressed down into your heart, into your emotions, and into your whole being. But it starts with a soaking in and meditating on what is true. And then asking questions of it. Uh, Martin Luther, when his barber asked him, hey, how, how, can, I, how can I do this? And he, and he wrote him a 
40-page letter, and the last two pages is all you really need. But basically, he said, hey, what you do is you start with any piece of Scripture, maybe the, the Ten Commandments, maybe this, uh, the Lord's Prayer or, or one of the Psalms, and you just begin to ask some questions of it. What is this Psalm teaching me? What am I learning? What is this Psalm uh, calling me to praise? What, what can I praise about God in this? What is this Psalm calling me to confess and repent of? And what is this Psalm inviting me to ask God for? Uh, I'll, I'll put it online later for you to get that. But it's a great letter of just like, how do we, how do we meditate on the Lord? How do, we, how do we immerse ourselves in it? And when you begin to immerse, some things happen in this. First and foremost is you actually get a picture of who God actually is. Because left to ourselves, we would create a God in our own image. We would create a God that is manageable, a God that is only imminent, a God that is only love, a God that, that would never really kind of a, either kind of a, a butler in the sky that is here to kind of come in when we, we need, need something, or maybe kind of like an old kind of grandpa God that just pats little kids on the head and gives them candy. That's the God we would create in our own image if we had no revelation from this God who is above and beyond us, but instead he's given us his law, his instruction, his word, and he says, no, this is what God is like. In fact, in the Psalms that we already saw, Luther talked about, you get a lot of pictures of God, ones that we would, in our own, in our own minds, not create, ones that we would wrestle with, ones that we're confused by, ones that sometimes uh, we, we get frustrated with God. Sometimes we're, we're angry. We, we don't understand. He is infinite. We're finite. And so in the Psalms, you, you get Psalms of lament. Like, God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> well, why are you like this, God? You, you say you're like this, but I, I see reality differently. And, and it seems like there's a disconnect. And, and God, in his mercy and his grace and his self-revelation in the Psalms, he actually gives us language to process and wrestle with deep, deep things. To lament to cry out, to, to come before him, to see him as the enthroned king, all these things. There is, a, there is a depth to the Psalms that I think we're lacking by and large in, in our uh, Christianity today. I think we, we go to one part of the Psalm, which is, which is immediate praise and happiness. And, and, and there's a place, there, there's a place for that. But, but there, is a, there is a way to worship God in the worst times of life through tears through anger, through confusion. And so this is why like Calvin was like, hey, we're going to sing all of these because we want to train our hearts to give thanksgiving, to do confession, to, 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 to lament. We, we want to train all of those. And, and so we, we would do well. There was a time in church history where most of the hymns and songs were written by pastors and theologians immersed uh, in the scriptures and out of there writing the songs for God's people. There, there was a depth to that. And somewhere along the way, we decided uh, it needs to be a more about just musical performance and, and what's poppy and catchy. And, and I'm like, do you guys even have a Bible? And the Bible gives us a lot of good resources and depth for the, the shaping of our worship, right? Like, you don't have a Bible. You have a subscription to the Weather Channel, apparently, because your songs are about floods and, and hurricanes and, and wind. And like, what is this? Uh, tell me, call me a liar. I'm not lying, right? Like that's, it's like, come on. So the Psalms are going to paint a picture of who God actually is, even when we don't like it. But reality is what we want and reality is the path that we're on. Eugene Peterson put it this way. 
He said, in a world of prayers that indulge the religious ego and cultivate passionate longings, the Psalms stand out with a kind of angular austerity. Left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us, the Psalms, which train us in that conversation. It's training us in a kind of conversation. Think about how you learned how to speak your first language. You probably don't know. But well, you know, you know that your parents, your mom, your dad, uh, others just began to speak to you. You had no, you didn't even know what a language was. And they spoke to you and they repeated and they, they used maybe smaller words, but, but just they spoke to you, they spoke to you. And over time, their words became your words. I think one of the reasons we struggle with prayer is because we haven't learned to let God's words become our words. And so prayer feels shallow. It feels surface level. I don't, I don't know how to go deep. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says he was in his late 40s until when he began to learn how to pray. And he began to learn how to pray by soaking himself in the Psalms. Because over time and through confusion and not understanding it at all, but, but just kind of just receiving it, receiving it, those words became his words. So, so when we brought our daughter home for, uh, when she was 12 years old, uh, adopted from Thailand. She only spoke Thai. We only spoke English. And, and we weren't like, how are we going to communicate? We just talked to her in English. And we talked to her in English. And we talked to her t- in English. And when my kids went to Czech schools and, and they sat in the classroom, not a word of Czech, they just sat there. And they ta- the teacher talked to them. And, and they just observed and they observed and they observed. And eventually their Czech words became their words. The Czech thinking became their thinking. This is what the psalmist is saying it, meditate on the law day and night so it becomes your word. And, and then, then it eventually gets pushed down to the heart and it says you delight in the law of the Lord. That, that there are things in this world that are really good things that some of you know about, but it was an acquired taste. You ever meet someone that just has no patience for acquired tastes? They don't like coffee. They don't like beer. They don't like... Uh, they don't like certain foods. They, they, they eat chicken nuggets because that's all their parents fed them their whole life and that's their limited range. It's a poverty of life, really, in that way, right? So, so when my daughter had her graduation party a couple weeks ago, we were like, what food do you want to have? She said, oh, of course, it's Japanese curry. And some of you are like, what? This is what she grew up on. It's her comfort food. But for some people, that's an acquired taste. But she delights in this. She says, no, it's what it, you said to me. It is innately good. It's innately good, but it's evidence of the fall that some people don't Okay. Like it. <laughs> she said, it's innately good, but evidence of the fall that some people don't like it. And then I told her back. I said, you know what? That's true of God's word. It is innately good, but it's evidence of the fall that we get bored by it. So we have to train our palate, our spiritual palate for our joy. This is for your joy. Well, when you do that, what happens is there starts to become a depth to our soul. And this is what the psalmist says. He, the blessed man, is like a tree planted in streams of water. You can just picture this. It's planted, so the gardener puts it there specifically and puts it there just in the right spot, just, just the right distance away from water. And, and in, the, in the Middle East and North Africa, you can see Google Earth. It's mostly all desert. 
But, but you see these like green strips from like the satellite view. The Jordan River, there's a green strip going up Israel. Uh, on the east side of Africa, there's a, a bright green strip in the middle of the desert. It's the Nile River. And, and God says the person that meditates, that soaks in, that is like that. They, they, there is, there is, they are planted. They're getting the nutrients. And it yields fruit. You, part of our joy is to see God yield his fruit in us as we follow Jesus. And so he says the person that soaks in this does that. Its leaf does not wither. Why? Because its roots are deep, deep. So when life hits you and life will hit you, when the doctor calls and says the results aren't good, or when people abandon you or, or curse you or, or try to tear you down, if your roots are deep, your leaf will not wither because it's built into the goodness of God and his word. It says in all he does, he prospers. And, and biblical prosperity is not the health and wealth clowns of like, oh, God only wants you healthy and wealthy. Biblical prosperity is, is being known by God and knowing God. It is living life as God intended it in relationship with him. Then verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, if you have enough self-awareness, there actually should be at this point in thinking through Psalm 1, a creeping realization, a terror. It's similar to like the Sermon on the Mount. Most people that don't know that much, even, even non-Christians, they'll be like, oh, we just love Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But it's like that one professor, she assigned a, a writing project to do a, a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. And one, one kid came back and, and he wrote, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount because it makes me feel like I need to be perfect and no one is. Mark Twain, who was not a Christian, but he was haunted by this. He had this recurring nightmare. And in his nightmare, he'd be laying in bed and a giant Bible would come down from heaven and begin to press on his chest and suffocate him. He's actually pretty self-aware. Let me ask you this question. Who is the blessed man? Did you notice it was singular? Who is the blessed man there? The wicked is all plural. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's a present perfective. It is, it is this picture of there, there are two ways to live. And the blessed man, the righteous person, has never walked in the counsel of the wicked, has never stood in the way of sinners, has never sat in the seat of scoffers, never. And the realization should be like, oh no, I did that this week. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've affirmed things that are not of God. I've sat in the seat of scoffers. I, I, I have, oh no. A guy by the name of Joseph Flax at the beginning of the last century, 20th century, uh, he, he got to go to Palestine and he had, to, he had the opportunity to speak to a group of, a mixed group of Jews and Muslims. And so he started with Psalm 1 and he got to this point that says, hey, look, don't, there's a, who, who is the psalmist talking about? Who is the blessed man? Who is the righteous man? And they said, was it Abraham? You know, the father of both the religions. Is it, is it Abraham? And they said, well, not, not, not strictly according to Psalm 1 because Abraham kind of was a deceiver and he lied about his wife Sarah, so it can't be Abraham. So, well, okay, well, was it Moses, the one who God gave the law to bring the law that, that he, to meditate on? And they said, well, no. Moses was also a breaker of the law. He, he murdered the Egyptian. He didn't trust in God. Okay, 
Was it King David, the one who wrote this psalm? Was it King David? Is he who this psalm is pointing to? And they're like, no. No, he, he committed adultery, he committed murder. He, he was a man after God's own heart, but he is, he, is, he, he is not perfect. So who is it? Who is this psalm pointing to? So there was just this long kind of silence, like, oh, we don't know. And an older Jewish man stood in the back and he said, well, I don't know about this. I, I don't even know if I believe this, but someone gave me this book called the New Testament and it seems like it's pointing to this guy named Jesus. And we, we start to see what Jesus said about the entire Bible and what Jesus and the psalmist is saying. In the end, every psalm is meant to stir our, pray, our prayers and our praise and it's meant to point us to Jesus. He is the one. He is the only one that at, at all times and every moment of his life, he delighted in the law of the Lord. He's the only one that never strayed from the path. He is the one that filled his mind. Uh, Luke chapter 6 and Mark 1, day and night he would go off and he would uh, be with his father and, he, and this was his prayer book and he would memorize it and internalize it and always, always, always do what Psalm 1 is commanding him to do. He is the blessed one. So, well, that's great. That's Jesus, but... But what, what, how, how do I do that? How do I delight in the law? It just seems, it seems that if it's just a, an example for us, it seems oppressive. I've failed. I, I fall into the category of the wicked. I can't do it. Well, the way that you do that, the way that you get to a point of delighting in the instruction and in the law of God is not to try harder, but it is to look to Jesus, particularly look to Jesus on the cross. And what is Jesus doing on the cross? In, in the moment of the deepest pain and the deep, deepest anguish that the universe has ever seen, what is Jesus doing? He is meditating on the Psalms. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When, when life hit the worst, what, what comes out of his soul is Scripture. Of the 1,800 verses of, of Christ's speech in the, in the Bible, 10%, 180 of them are quotations from the Old Testament. He's just soaked in this. And in, in, in this moment on the cross, what is he doing? He's processing. He, he's reminding himself of, of why he came and what's ultimately true. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes on and it talks about my, my heart is like wax. It melts within me. All of my joints are out of, out of joint. My side is pierced, he, but none of my bones are broken. He's meditating on scripture in this moment. And in this moment... He's reminding himself of his purpose. He clings to the word of God, to the law of the Lord. Even in this moment, he delights in it. And, and he's doing what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He, he's doing what uh, Psalm 1, verse 4. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Jesus is becoming the chaff for us. He's exchanging his perfection, his life, his delighting in the law at all times and in, perfect, in a perfect way before God. He's giving that to you and to me to be received by faith. So this is how we can delight in the law. We can look to Jesus. We can look to the one who deserves all praise and honor and glory and the one who takes on it, our sin in our place. He, he sits with the seat of scoffers and he dies with the scoffers so that you and I never have to. 
So now that the law is not about our legalistic requirement and doing it perfectly, it's more about the way of Jesus. And because we follow Jesus and we have the righteousness of Jesus, we have the life of Jesus living in us, our spirit now joins with the Holy Spirit and we want to honor Jesus. We want to grow. And so we now have a pathway to delight in the law of the Lord. So how do we, how do we actually obey psalm number one as we work our way through the rest of the psalms let me just say this there, there are i'll put it on the screen there are 150 psalms verse two says he delights on them day and night so that would take you 75 days to soak in the psalms this summer and if you took 75 days we'll give you some bonus days because psalm 119 is pretty long so give you a week for that but if you took morning and evening if you, if you just open one psalm and you begin to uh, just soak in that psalm and ask the questions, that, do, do what Martin Luther told his barber to do. Just ask some questions. Learn how to pray it. It's going to be awkward at first. You know, it's really awkward to learn a new language. I've tried it. But, but over time, it begin, becomes, that language becomes your language. And so uh, you can soak in that. In fact, I'll have a resource uh, online that I'll give you. Actually, I found uh, Tim Keller wrote it, Praying with the Psalms. And it's just, it just kind of walks you through the different categories of psalms. Psalms of meditation, psalms of praise, psalms of exaltation, psalms of lament. And it kind of walks you through and kind of holds your hand, if you will, to show you how you can do what Psalm 1 commands us to do. In the end, it is for your joy. And so even in this moment, you have a decision to make. Do, do I believe what this guy's saying on the stage? Do I believe what Psalm 1 says? Will that actually bring me, maximize my happiness or not? If you do, you'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. I'll soak in the Psalms this summer. I'll do one in the morning and one at night, and I'll just move my, my bookmark one to the next to the next, and I will begin to see if this really will Put me on a path of joy. I believe it will. I believe God's word is true. You will be like a tree planted by streams of living water. Your roots will grow deeper this summer because in the end, we don't want to be a church with shallow faith, shallow joy, shallow hope. We want to be a church with roots deep, deep, deep in the nutrients of God's word that informs and shapes our prayers and our, our, our relationship with God. We want to be a church that, that when the storms of life hit, our leaf does not wither and our light continues to shine. To that end, let me pray for us in that way. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I thank you for Psalm 1. And just a reminder that ultimately, Jesus, you are the blessed man that this psalm points to. And your blessing is our blessing by grace through faith. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that has not uh, turned over their, their life to you, that right now they would follow their joy to Jesus. Father, I pray for us as we work our way in the Psalms this, this summer, that you would just make our roots grow deeper or give us language, new language, and new thoughts for our prayers and our relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.